Hello, and thank you for joining us on another episode of HashMap on Tap. I am your host, Randy Pitcher. Today, we are pleased to welcome Sunny Rivera. Sunny is the Director of Data Delivery at Ally Financial, a leading digital financial services company and a top 25 U.S. financial holding company offering financial products for consumers, businesses, automotive dealers, and corporate clients. Uh, Sunny, welcome to the show. What are you drinking today? Thanks for having me. Uh, I am having just a little bit of uh, iced tea with lemon. Iced tea with lemon. Now, do you take that sweet or unsweet? Oh, well, we're in the South. It has to be sweet, right? It has to be sweet. Oh, <laughs> there's, man, my, there's actually no such thing as tea that's not sweetened, in my opinion. Oh, man. <laughs> my, my wife uh, agrees with you. She's from Louisiana. There you go. And, uh, we, we went to school in Indiana, and anytime she'd order iced tea, it would come unsweetened, and that just bugged her, right? This isn't iced tea. No, no. In the in the south, and actually in the town I came from, there was an ordinance that you had to have, uh, you had to offer sweetened tea. There was uh, an ordinance. The town got together and was like, "We need to put this." Yes, you saw <laughs> because the town started to explode so much, and all of these people coming in, and people would just say, "Oh, you say what kind of tea do you want?" And they, or you would say, "I want tea," and they would come back and say, "Well, what kind? We have peach in a bottle, and we have this." It's like, no, 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 tea, sweetened tea. So. Okay, getting down to business. I like that. Uh, I'm having, uh, as I usually have, an Americano, but I am. Uh, it's a different flavor. So it's from Bones uh, Coffee, which you might have seen on like Instagram, whatever. They have really uh, interesting kind of like skeleton art on their their coffee. I got it for Father's Day, and it's Cinnabon. Uh, oh, okay. And it is spectacular, man! It is such a good flavor. Cinnamon is one of my favorites, so um, I'm really happy to have it. It is not sweetened. It's it's um dark but uh, it's still quite good well i'm a dark coffee drinker myself so oh nice okay nice sweet tea dark coffee well hey tell me sunny uh you want to start off maybe by telling us a bit about your background and what you do yeah so um wow i've been doing software and data for a very long time you know more than 20 years like after 20 years i stopped counting um (laughs) but, but uh you know, probably for the last 15 years, I've been focusing on uh, cloud-based data, enterprise data warehousing, cloud-based data, customer data platforms, those sorts of things. Um, That's really what I've been doing for the last, say, 15 years. Okay. And how did you get into that space? Was that like plan A for you or is it kind of a happy accident? I think it was was more of a happy accident. Um, I am, uh, I am actually, kind of a hardcore software developer. I love doing software development. Um, I started out as um, uh, doing embedded software, right? So writing. Yes. Like Um, what did did you like C assembly? Like what were you using? Absolute C assembly, (laughs) ADA. Um, Okay. You're probably too young to remember, but in the first Gulf war, there were all these television guided weapons, right? So um, I wrote the software. I, that actually did the tracking algorithms on those. Really? Yes. And I take a little too much credit. My my wife did the design for the software. I worked on the writing test software to test her design. Really? Did you guys meet at at your at your job? Yes, we like to say under the glow of missiles, but yes. <laughs> wow, that's really special, man. That's really cool. I, I So I am definitely too young to remember, but I do have some uh, uh, awareness of the importance of those systems because uh, 
in, during the Cold War, there's like a list of top cities that they would destroy in the U.S. And they had varying like financial or strategic value. And one was in Indiana where I'm um, where I went to school, and it was Fort Wayne. I'm like, what? What do they care about Fort Wayne? I guess they produced a lot of the radar screens uh, oh. for the military in that area. I don't know if it was Magnavox or one of the manufacturers there. So uh, I kind of know a little bit, uh, not really anything. Okay, so you yeah. got started in kind of like that lower level code, really detailed stuff. How did you get into data? So I, I got into data uh, when I took a job um, with a company uh, here in Charlotte at, to lead their, they wanted to build kind of a web-based um, data warehouse, right? They, they yeah. really wanted to give their customers a product to query marketing data, right? Um, so they asked me to come on board. They had a desktop product and they wanted to publish it out to the web and, and re, really kind of uh, re-architect that, re-architect that. They wanted to see a quantum leap in usage and value uh, and usability. So it started out as me building a .NET web application, but pretty soon I had to learn a lot about data, right? We had these yeah. massive data warehouses and the data was on premise. And so we had to move it to, you know, the cloud and we started in Azure and then we moved it to Amazon Redshift and then we moved it to Snowflake. Um, so that was my journey into the, into the cloud um, and into data, right? And then what we began to do there is to say, you know, we really have to master these, this, these customer prospects and we weren't doing it just for ourselves, right? If you're looking at your customers, maybe you have hundreds or thousands, but when you're looking at the marketplace and you're looking at customers for all of these different companies, then yeah. you have a much harder problem, much larger scale, right? <laughs> yeah. So. so speaking of kind of the challenges in there, like thinking back to before you jumped to the cloud, like what kind, were you guys using like a Hadoop stack or did you have like a Microsoft suite of tools? What were you using? Yeah. It was a Microsoft suite of tools, right? Okay. And so, and, and what was interesting, you know, I have to say I was even involved in data before that, now that you you ask about that. We, we, um, I started a company. I worked at a startup company was one of the owners of, and we did a data modeling product. Right. And so our really? chief, yeah, our chief competitor was Erwin. You've probably heard of that tool. I have right. weirdly right. in, um, I don't think it fully supports snowflake, yeah. but people yeah. who use it, they love it. So that's why I've been asked about Erwin. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it's been around a long time, right? Well, you know, Erwin was so successful. They, Put us out of business. Oh no! <laughs> they got you. So, so I have a love-hate relationship with them. Um, okay. But so I got involved in data modeling there, and that kind of led into the cloud. So yeah, it was more of a micro Microsoft-based stack to kind of answer your question. That's a good background to have that modeling background because it's kind of critical now, where uh, performance and like runtime is equal to cost. So yes. if if you just have an intuitive understanding of how to model data for whatever use cases, you can save a lot of money. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I, one thing that's, I can tell some of us old school folks are a little bit different than maybe uh, some of the younger folks that are coming along and have not had to think about these things. But, yeah. you know, we had to think about how many nine gig drives can I put into this chassis and how can I strike <laughs> my data over this? And, and that was what data was about, was managing how fast those spindles could turn and how to strike your data across them, right? Yeah. That's what we did, uh, you know, in tools like Redshift and, Amazon and, and Snowflake, they completely abstracted that. 
and yeah. they do it they do it better than humans do right <laughs> yeah no i so i i got started in the hadoop era right so um, I did not have to think about low-level hardware, like an individual node. I did have to think about a cluster's pool of hardware. And it was more about, like, how do you partition data that's going to be schema on read, like, performances. And, of course, everything people wanted to do was BI, which is a bad fit for HDFS. Like, that's just – I'll make a bold statement. It's a, it's a bad fit. You're not going to get low latency on your Hive cluster, no matter how much you partition it. So um, it was a good, like, useful experience, but I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore on tools like Snowflake. Yeah. Um, I, I don't miss it so much. I certainly, at certain scales, I'm glad I understand how partitioning works if I do have to get there. But I have never, for any client, really had to get in and, like, do a manual cluster on Snowflake. Right, right. And if I never have to, you know, that was a challenge with Redshift, right, um, which was even though you kind of had this MPP system, you still had a lot of maintenance um, and management of what should my cluster keys be and partitioning all the data and sort keys. It was it was a lot of um, complexity in that piece if you wanted any performance, right? Yeah, so. yeah. And I, I still see that in uh, NoSQL systems, right? Like uh, Dynamo on AWS or even Mongo where that key design um, Often I'll see that like web developers put it together and they're literally just shoving the entire like state of a client in there with like the ID. Um, and then they sort based on fields that are within the actual value. And it's not, they don't use a distribution key. They don't use anything like that. And they're like, well, we're spending a ton on like reading write units. I'm like, well, yeah, you are, bud. Like oh, they're trying to do aggregation on it. And they're like, we're trying to build a dashboard. It's, it's really slow and expensive. I'm like, well. Yeah, y'all, y'all ever heard of SQL? Yeah, you're you're doing a full table scan on everything you do. Yes. Yeah. And so if if I never have another index, write another index, maintain another index, uh, I'll be happy dealing with replication. If I never have to deal with that, you know, if I can turn it on, turn it off, great. But that's beyond. That's about all I ever want to do with it again. Okay. And now, so you don't have to worry about those specific challenges, but there are still challenges in the space. Now on more modern uh, tech stack, what are the things that you focus on? So I, th I think one thing is real-time data collections is a challenge and it's, it's a net new thing, right? Um, so is it, whether it's data coming from ATM machines that we need to get into real-time decisioning, is this a fraudulent activity? Yeah, right? fraud detection, right. that's a cool use case. Yeah, so you think about data coming in in real time. Is it fraudulent, you know, or detecting somebody's sentiment or something to that effect? So I think those are, are really big challenges. Um, and and the, the marketplace is catching up to those, right, of systems yeah. of how to. I mean, we've seen streaming systems come out there, um, whether it's Kinesis or Kafka, but they're maturing more and more, right? Yeah. And, and then I think the other thing that's happening is, the knowledge level, right? We build on our knowledge level. You don't worry about spindles turning anymore, right? Yeah. You don't think about that. And I think when it comes to streaming, soon we will not be worrying about streaming, but it's in the forefront. You know, we have to have developers that know Kafka and how those topics work and how it streams, right? Pretty soon we're going to get to the point where that's second nature. Yeah. And then you can focus on actual solutions, which I think that's that's when you consider something really matured. And I think about the different components of our modern data stack, right? Where we had the warehouses have really matured and that opened the door for ETL to become 
commodified, right? There's not a ton of value in your custom ETL if there's like a connector that you can spend $200 a month on, right? Like there's just nothing compared to the, the dev time. And then you'll you'll see that progress up the stack, right? Where BI has become very mature. Anyone that can spend 70 bucks a month on a Tableau license, like they can put really compelling dashboards together. And then the next steps are like the streaming and the machine learning, right? right. Uh, right. That are really gonna unlock the doors to I think this data future that we're all thinking about. Yeah, and you're seeing that, by the way, you know, you're talking about this evolution and you we see it with products like Tableau, but you may have an install of Tableau. And now those are becoming, you know, software as a service. So you see companies yeah. like Sigma coming along. That's just connecting to your warehouse. Everything is through your browser. Um, you can do modeling. You can read JSON. You can do schema on read things in those types of tools. Um, so, yeah, I think we're getting to a higher level of abstraction which lets us solve real business problems instead exactly. of the bits and bytes. And I think it exposes a problem I think a lot about, and I don't see perfect solutions in the marketplace. Um, certainly not of the caliber of something like Sigma where you can just go sign up, start using right away, right. Uh, is the data lineage and discovery, right? And the contextualization of all this work we did. So the data engineers, we finally got the tools we need to do like, software development for data engineering. The tables are clean, they're ready to consume, but like the business doesn't use them. Right. <laughs> what do we do this for? Like, how do we how do we give them the insight, the understanding, the context for this information? And that's a cool space I'm keeping an eye on. Well, you, you will be interested in, um, you should think about more than just BI people are, aren't using it, right? Because you're gonna have discovery, automated discovery of that same information, right? Now it's going yeah. to mean machines are learning what that data is and are using it, right? So that lineage, what that data is, that needs to be discoverable by algorithms, right? Yeah. And then utilized in those algorithms without, there's so much data, you can't possibly have a person have to think about each individual field. So I think yeah. with what you're talking about, lineage, cataloging, you're going to start seeing algorithms consuming that, right? Um, I'm ready for it. Yeah, like because I, I don't want to focus on those problems anymore. I don't want to be like, okay, is this column used? Like, wait, just where do I go? Because you have a business problem, right? And if you don't ever get to the point of like making a different decision, it, it was all just kind of theater. That's right. That's right. So that leads me into my kind of next question. In, when you think about your current role and maybe some previous roles you've had, what has been the hardest part? What's been the biggest challenge? So, you know, from a, a technical perspective, I think, you know, you still have the volumes and velocities, real-time data is a, is a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. um, volumes have been a challenge um, from a technical perspective, right? Moving from on-premise to the cloud, that's one of those things. Um, we hear a lot about it, but I think it's happening slower than, than maybe the marketing wants you to know, but it is okay. happening slower. Yeah. Um, but I think that's been a challenge. And then on the business side, right, um, is really aligning what you're doing across multiple business stakeholders. It's probably a luxury to have one product or one stakeholder <laughs> that defines things for you. Yeah. Uh, in modern world, and, and this has been in almost every company I've been with, we have multiple lines of business, multiple products, competing priorities. And yep. what it means to a technologist is I have four lines of business, they all have four number one priorities, right? They can't even force rank within themselves. Right? <laughs> so, so they have four number one 
priorities. I got five of those lines of business. That means I have 20 yeah. top priority items, right? That's usually the challenge. Uh, and it doesn't matter what company you're at. Yeah, no, en- enterprise, I think, has been that way and that it's really organizational challenges, right? Like if if we had the best deep learning data scientists ever and they were deploying models, that still wouldn't solve your challenges. Like how do you get the insights out? So, I mean, how do you think about that? How do you try to ensure alignment across your different business users? You know, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. From my perspective, um, collaboration here is the key. And then building trust and credibility. Okay. Um, the, one of the things I hear from technologists saying, hey, my business stakeholders uh, don't trust us, right? Yeah. Um, but I kind of turn that back on myself and say, wait a minute, have we given them a reason? Do we, do we you know, have we gained them some credibility? What have we done to yeah. earn that credibility? And so sometimes you kind of have to turn that back on yourselves. Uh, so that's kind of how I ha- handle that sort of it. That, that problem. Uh, another way is really, and I learned this way back in my software development days, is the best thing we can do is embed our data engineers in with the business. Really? Right? Okay. Oh, oh, yeah. Just have them go and do the job. So I used to, when I would hire data engineers, the first thing they would do is go work out on the floor with the data entry people, folks that were entering in data. And then they sat in on sales calls because we sold data, right? I'm selling you data to say, hey, I've got a list. I've got a list of all the people in the country that want to um, buy HashMap type of services. Yeah, right? I right? love that list. <laughs> if, you, if I could give you that list, right? And so we put them in on the sales calls. We put them on the customer support calls to hear, you know, when you say, well, I called that person and they haven't worked there for five years. Well, that's a problem. That's a data quality problem. And yeah. they, they need to feel that and see that and know it. Um, and I, you know, we talk about saying, hey, take product owners and embed them in our agile squads. Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we don't take our technical uh, experts and embed them in the business. Put them out there, let them work in that business and understand what's going on. And they'll yeah. come back and build better products. Man, that's really insightful. That just treating trust as the currency that you're working with and to, yeah. get that user perspective firsthand. That's really important. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know this, when you're, when your business owners, your stakeholders believe and understand that you, you understand their problem, then they're, they're willing to work with you. But so many times it starts with, you don't understand, they don't understand. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a gap that's hard to, to cross. Right? Yeah. It's that, that adversarial relationship, like yeah. on both sides. And then no one wants to work with each other. Yeah. yeah, and, and it, it, sometimes it can be adversarial, and, and sometimes it just comes out of uh, we've got blinders on. You know, yeah. I have technical experts, and I want them to know X, Y, and Z, and it's hard to know what's going on in the business as well. Um, it, success in my career has come when I've been able to cross the lines between being able to talk to uh, technologists, but also being able to, to talk to the business. Yeah, yeah. No, that's insightful. So tell me, Sonny, how's that drink? Oh, well, it's pretty good. It's actually empty now. About empty there. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm on the same path. I got just a little bit left here. And this is my last of the day. I try to keep it just to two cups. Two uh, cups I can see that. <laughs> okay, so moving here into the second half. Um, so the way you and I started talking with each other is for a Snowflake event coming up. 
uh, group buy. That's that's later this week. Probably it's going to be in the past by the time this episode's out. Um, but we're both presenting different kind of topics. And you had such an interesting topic. I had to get you on here to talk about it. You want to tell me a little bit about your passion for barbecue? Yeah. So I guess it started about 10 years ago. And, and my brother-in-law, as a Christmas gift, bought me a smoker, right, uh, to smoke barbecue. And I began to just try it out. And um, of course, I, being in the South, I love uh, barbecue. North Carolina has a, a strong history of barbecue. Yeah. Um, and so if you're going to make more barbecue in North Carolina, you probably better bring it pretty strong. Right. Yeah. So I started buying books and learning what was going on, learning the history of, of what was going on with barbecue and, and just trying so many different things. And as with um, a lot of things, it turned into an engineering problem. Yeah. Right? So um, uh, just a, a brief example. Uh, I, I worked in the defense industry. I wrote this software for manipulating images. And pretty soon that said, well, maybe I should do, I can do some astronomy. I did astronomy. I really like that. But then that turned into digital photography and managing, you know, and, and manipulating the images. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, I said, well, you know, I like music. I'm going to play the guitar. And so I learned, start to learn how to play the guitar, but I really like engineering and recording. Right? Yeah. So in my career, I've just been a better engineer than an artist. <laughs> okay. So barbecue turned into something that is, you know, truly cooking is a is an art, right? Yeah. So I'm probably a better engineer again than than an artist than a chef. But I wanted to understand how uh, all of these things work together, uh, the temperatures, the meats, the t the the actual weather, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and one of the challenges with this with barbecue, uh, especially if you do big pieces of meat, pork butts, and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's, it's a 16 hour process, right? And so it's a, it's a big commitment. Um, and depending on say the weather conditions, you, you can get up two times in the middle of the night in the freezing cold to, to make sure your fire hasn't run out. Yeah. Right. So those were some of the, the challenges and, you know, some of the reasons I kind of got involved with that. So you, you got involved with it and you have a pretty interesting setup now that's a pretty technologically advanced. You want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So um, one of the things I did, first of all, was just to learn how this all works, right? And how the smokers are working. And, and, and it's a very simple system. Okay. Um, but, you know, just from a, a, your standard setup, air draws in from the bottom, runs over, cools, gets pulled out the top. The more air you push through, the higher the temperature goes, right? Okay. And so manually controlling airflow is manually controlling temperature, right? Um, and you can do that with a thermometer, and you see it on the outside. Um, but it's a 16-hour process. So you're going to stand and watch and kind of make these manual updates all the time. Yeah. Um, so first thing I did was said, let me just instrument my smoker with an IoT thermometer. So okay. it's throwing off. Uh, temperature readings of both, you know, a probe that's in the food as well as um, inside the chamber. So what's the temperature of the chamber? It's throwing that off every minute. So then okay. I just began to analyze that data. Hey, what does it look like? What's it look like compared to the weather? What's it look like compared to the wind? Um, and then it started to say, well, I wonder if you could, um, I wonder if you could predict how long it's going to take to cook the meat. Well, the, the cook times are pretty much consistent, right? If, 
Yeah. The temperature's right internally, it's gonna take this long. That's a thermodynamic problem that's been solved for years. The thing that was challenging for me was, okay, well, <clears throat> how many times are I gonna have to get up <laughs> at, with it, you know, 30 degrees outside and go outside and, and rebuild a fire, right? Yeah. So can I, can I predict refuel times? Um, so that, that's kind of where this piece headed. That's really cool. So tell me about the hardware. Cause that was really interesting to me. You didn't, you didn't just go and like get sensors, right? Like just like glue and solder and all that kind of stuff. Was there like a vendor you used that was really good for this? Yeah, there, there is a vendor. And actually I did go do that first, oh, right? Did you really? Yeah. Just okay. my first, my first cut at this was really, uh, just a board that you could put together and follow the instructions and, and, and pull this information off. Um, it didn't have a drive to drive a fan and draw the air. Mm -hmm. um, so my first versions of this were just, hey, it's just throwing off uh, temperature data inside the chamber, yeah. right? And then that just meant I had to go out and manually do stuff, yeah. right? So it's only solved part of the problem. Um, and there are people out there smarter than me. So, and, and of course, this is, if you were to go out and Google this, you see people hey, building out a Raspberry Pi and writing their own application on it to, to, to do this stuff. But there are vendors. And so I used a, a vendor called Fireboard. Okay. Um, and they, they're pretty cool in that they opened up an API to their device. Um, so that was pretty cool. Now I could just write RESTful APIs against the device and pull the information. Um, and then they added the extra feature of <clears throat> they have a 12-volt a drive on it that says, Hey, if the temperature's low, we're going to drive a fan and yeah. draw more air through. And then when the temperature gets up to temp to to where you want it to the set point, uh, we'll shut off. And so it kind of monitors the chamber temperature and drives the fan. So that that seems like something that should be built into a smoker. Like that should come out of the box that way. Is that not standard? No, it's not standard. Um, some maybe some high end. There's some electric ones that that may do something like this, but electric does. They've got their own, you know, it's plugged in. Yeah. Uh, they've got their own thermostat, so they're maintaining the temperature. If you're going to smoke with with uh, wood or charcoal, yeah, I haven't seen this built into. I haven't seen it built in, man. Uh, and now that you mention it, I haven't seen, because it would need a power source, right? And I haven't seen, like, a ton of smokers plugged into the wall or anything. That's right. Well, what's interesting about this device, Fireboard, was they actually put a, a rechargeable battery in it that will run for 30 hours. Right. Whoa, so, there you yeah. I, I wonder, is there a way to, and I don't, it would be cool if it could power itself from the heat. Cause there's probably a lot of waste heat right there. Right. That's pretty interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Oh, I, man. I, it doesn't take a lot. Uh, I wouldn't imagine it takes a lot of power, but you know, driving the fan probably takes more power than anything. Right? Yeah. That's a good but 30 so, hour battery, that's not a big deal. Right. Yeah. Unless you're, unless you're constantly smoking like oh, nonstop. Right. Well, i I, I keep mine plugged in, but if I were say, if I were say, I'm going to go out to camping, I'm going to take my smoker with me out to the lake, right? Yeah. And I'm going to do a 16 hour cook at the lake. Well, yeah, I might use the battery then. Man, 16 hour cook at the lake. That sounds great right now. <laughs> yeah. Sounds, I mean, that sounds really good. Yeah. Barbecue is, it is a labor of love. Um, and it is, it takes a good bit of, you know, dedication to do this. And, um, you know, there are people that are so passionate about it. They, yeah. they, you know, they do all sorts of things. For me, until I got an IoT device that was kicking off data and sending me alerts, 
uh, if I did a cook in the middle of the night, I pulled up my tent, even in my yard and slept outside. Really? Right? Yes. Yeah. I just, and I would get up every hour, look at, okay. Because if, you know, let's just say you run out of fuel right now, you're in trouble. You're going to have to rebuild this whole thing and the barbecue is going to suffer. It's going to take longer and it's probably going to dry out. Or if you, you know, overcooked it and you too much air, it's running too hot. You're going to, you know, you're going to build a 16 hour piece of leather, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so that, that kind of leads me to my question. So I'm not a, a barbecuer, but Hashmap, uh, the company, we have, I think our biggest footprint is in Houston. So a lot of Texans on staff. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when they heard we were going to do this session, they had some really detailed questions. Okay. Uh, and, and so I want to ask you a couple questions about what you learned from doing this. If there are any insights that change the way you cook or some surprises that you didn't expect? Yeah. So there's, there is something I learned and it's funny you brought up Texas because it's the, what this process is called is uh, the Texas crutch. Wow. Right? The Texas crutch has got a whole method here. Yeah. Ask your, ask your buddies if they know about the Texas crutch, which is essentially, um, you know, it's a 16 hour process. Um, but if you were to take that meat after a while, say two or three hours, you could wrap it in foil. And what right. that does is it keeps the, the meat warmer. It doesn't let it have the evaporative effect, effect of unwrapped meat. Mm -hmm. And so the temperature just kind of keeps powering through what they call the, slow, the, the stall, a long, slow heating up of the meat. Well, if you wrap it, the Texas crutch, it'll just power through that and get to temperature and, you know, you could probably save yourself five hours in getting it done. So okay. that's an interesting process. Um, it, it does change the texture of the barbecue a little bit. So you kind of have to determine what you like and what you don't like. Right? Okay. So how, how would that be? I assume the outside's like not as like crunchy. I assume it's more moist. Yeah. So what you're talking about is what we call the bark, the outside the bark, okay. the bark right? So people want, you know, on the outside, a bark may be a little harder, crustier, but it's not just skin, right? It's, you've put a rub on this, right? And so if you used, I use cayenne pepper and some uh, raw sugar, um, a couple of other things. And so that may caramelizes around the outside of it. And yeah. when you cook it long and slow, it dries out and becomes crusty, right? But in, it's locking in the moisture inside of the meat. Um, whereas with the Texas crutch, when you wrap it, what happens is that's effectively like a braising of the meat, like almost like a stewing. And so yeah. that bark becomes more, becomes softer. Right. Yeah. Um, and I do know some folks that will do this method and then at the end, they'll hit it with really high heat, like 600 degrees, you know, for 30 minutes to crispen up the outside of it that's what i was going to ask about like maybe you can get it back it, i mean i guess um it, it's probably not the same right there's probably processes that happen the low low and slow and that's what i kept hearing internally uh, at hashmap is people are saying you gotta go low and slow with this yes absolutely yeah there's a couple of things i, I hope you'll like my talk because there's a couple of things around that right the the, the meat is maybe 70 percent of its weight is water right? yeah and you may lose 25% of that during the process. And the key is not to lose too much water. Um, the other part of low and slow is those connective tissues, those things that um, can be tough, if you cook them fast, 
they shrink up and they they harden like just a a ball oh. a, a ball of think of a ball of um, rubber bands. Yeah, they just shrink up and they harden that way. But when you cook them low and slow, they actually spread out um, oh, and they yeah. absorb water and then they break down. And those collagens they turn into something that you and I know and love, the exact same thing, and that's called Jello. Oh, ew. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's it. it's the it's the exact same contents of what's in Jello, that gelatin, right? Okay. Um, so that's one thing that happens. The other one is the the fats at about 180, 185 degrees, they they melt, they render into, and so. You have to let your barbecue run at that maybe 100, 185 for an hour or more to get those things to melt off, right? Yeah. And again, that provides juicy, tender, not necessarily healthy, but <laughs> juicy and tender. Yeah, okay. And, so, and man, this feels like an episode of Good Eats with Alton Brown. You've got a lot of details on this. You know, there's actually somebody you should take a look at. He does a podcast too. I think it's called Franklin Barbecue and he's out of Texas. Okay, uh, and I watch his uh, his episodes on YouTube. That's where I see him is on YouTube. Um, Franklin's barbecue really good. You learn a lot from that guy if you want to learn about barbecue. Okay, we'll we'll include a link to that for sure because I'll have to check that out. The last question I had on this, um, you you talked about wrapping with foil, but have you heard of wrapping with something else? Pink butcher paper. Have you heard of that? I have not heard of that. Neither have I. One of our folks internally he wanted to get the impression or, or get get your take on, you know, does it matter if you wrap with foil or he said specifically pink butcher paper. Um, but I'll find out what he meant. Maybe check in with you yeah. later. That would feel like it has a wax coating on it and I wouldn't be comfortable with that. Right. If it, I, it might be a Texas thing, man, yeah. those Texans yeah. aren't afraid of anything. They'll <laughs> barbecue anything around the house. That, that's right. And it's interesting. I, I tell you one thing I love about uh, barbecues. There's so many different styles in North Carolina to Texas, to Kansas city, to Memphis, you know, yeah. Georgia, Alabama, Alabama has a white sauce that they use. Right. Really? I've never yeah. had that before. Yeah. It's kind of a Alabama. It's kind of a mayonnaise based sauce. It's a white sauce. Oh, um, that's that sounds kind of gross, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not crazy about it. South Carolina uh, has a mustard sauce, and that's, oh, that's actually pretty good. good. Yeah, and South Carolina, Georgia's kind of um, uh, Georgia's kind of a dark red sauce, and it's it's a little more sweet. Um, yeah. But as as uh, I, I kind of listen to Thomas Jefferson when it comes to this, in in matters of in matters of style, you just kind of swim with the current. Right. Go with the curve. Okay, go with right. the flow. But but in matters of principle, right? We stand like a rock. Right. <laughs> and so those principles are what you just said, low and slow. It's it has to be that piece, right? Those yeah. are the principles and all the different styles you want. Uh, I think they're great. I just try them all. Okay. Yeah, you give them all a try. Well, um, I'm definitely interested to see uh, where your research goes from here. Uh, and see what other cool things you can do with that IoT uh, barbecue you have. All right, Sonny. So wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you, is there anything specifically you wanted to share with the audience or maybe broadcast to the world a little bit here? Well, first of all, let me say thank you for having me on your show and all the kindness you've shown to me. So I really do appreciate it. Um, I hope your listeners enjoyed what we talked about today. Uh, if I had any parting thoughts, I might share with your listeners. 
you know, in today's world, there's a lot of uh, stress right now. It's a tough place yeah. to be right now with COVID and, and, and so many other things. And as a, as a group, if we can be just a little more kind, add a little more kindness, it pays back tenfold. And uh, that's what I would leave your audience with. Oh, man, that's a beautiful sentiment, of course. Uh, I, I think that's probably true is to try to be kind and you'll see that come back to you. Uh, thank you. And, and of course, as always, uh, thank you to the audience for listening and subscribing and supporting us. Um, please do subscribe to HashMap on Tap to get more of our content. And we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to HashMap on Tap. Be sure to subscribe for weekly new episodes and visit HashMap's Medium blog for new data and cloud technology perspectives. If you have any comments or suggestions for the podcast, please visit the HashMap on Tap page on HashMap's website. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for tuning in.